Remain standing for our gospel lesson and also our sermon text from the end of John chapter 14. Listen carefully to the gospel of God. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for your word, the word of God, which is truth and which sanctifies us. And we ask you to accomplish that good work in us today, this morning, even now, as we meditate on these verses from John's gospel. Do your work in us by the power of your spirit and the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Please be seated. I've been appreciating lately how a lot of folks in the body are stepping up and doing things, most of it behind the scenes, Uh, most of it the majority of us don't know about, but I'm really thankful to see that. I'm always thankful for that kind of um, volunteering and service, serving the body, serving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And uh, one of the things that happened this week, though, is very visible. Uh, You see the table and the new pulpit. So very thankful for this. LD and Karen found an awesome deal and then went and picked it up and delivered it. So it even matches our furniture like it was made for this room. So really grateful for that. Here at the end of John 14, Jesus introduces a new topic. Now it makes sense for the first word of verse 27, to be peace. There's a logical flow here when we remember that Jesus, what, what Jesus had just said in verse 26. There he spoke of the coming of the Holy Spirit. That was last week's sermon. And we know from Galatians 5 that peace is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The topic of peace also fits, though, with the broader context. Throughout John 14, Jesus has been giving the disciples reasons, reasons not to be troubled. He's going to prepare a place for them in heaven. Eventually, He'll return for them. And while he's gone, he'll answer their prayers. While he's gone, he and the Father and the Spirit will make their home 
in and with them. While he's gone, he'll do mightier works through them than he did while he was on the earth. Those are some of the promises and some of the reasons to not be troubled. It's not the end. And now we come to the final reason why the disciples shouldn't let their hearts be troubled. And this is also why we shouldn't let our hearts be troubled. Jesus has left us with his peace. Verse 27 says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Peace is the Lord's dying bequest to his people. It's, we could call it his legacy. When the, when the Lord left us bodily, he left behind a peace that exceeds the ability of any human being to grasp, to understand it. Paul sums up this promise in Philippians 4, verse 7, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So to, to try to understand, though, the nature of this peace, we need to appreciate the tumultuous setting in which the words of verse 27 were spoken. So c- consider what's going to happen, what's already happened, but especially what's coming in the next 12 to 18 hours. This wasn't a circumstance marked by outer peace. Far from it. Christ is speaking on the eve of his gruesome crucifixion by Roman soldiers. Before that, he had... He, he'd be sold out, we could say, by his own people, by his, what he calls his brothers, his people, the Jewish people. And even his closest friends would betray him or deny him or just abandon him. They would scatter at the crucial moment. Jesus wasn't speaking from a position of outer peace. Nor was he speaking to others who were already at peace. The disciples were filled with dread and fear, the unknown. They were anxious. So the situation into which Jesus inserts his peace was was one that was full of troubles without and troubles within. They were troubled at heart because they were in troubling circumstances. One preacher tells the story, and this has been told by many preachers, of a contest in which artists were to submit paintings or sculptures portraying their understanding of peace. So they need to portray a peaceful situation somehow. Some of the artists painted beautiful sunsets, as you would imagine. Others depicted pastoral scenery. But the winner of the prize was an artist who painted a bird at peace in its nest. But here's why it won. The bird was in a nest that was attached to a branch that protruded from the edge of a thundering waterfall. 
And that's the situation here in John 14. They're on the edge of a thundering waterfall, just a a quarter of an inch away from disaster. The world's about to crash in on them. In times of outward peace, it's it's not difficult to, quote-unquote, be at peace. But it takes a supernatural peace. It takes a peace that surpasses, that goes beyond human understanding to prevail against the kind of troubles that Jesus and his apostles were about to face. Christ's peace is supernatural. It doesn't derive from this world. It doesn't derive from inside of us. It comes from above, and it's a peace that persists even though Christ is gone and even though the devil is active, here and active. Let's consider those three points as we walk through the text. First, number one, the peace of Christ is not from this world. It's supernatural gift from above. Number two, the peace of Christ persists even though Christ is gone. And number three, the peace of Christ persists even though the devil is active, present and active. So number one, the peace of Christ is not from this world. It's a supernatural gift from above. Jesus gives his peace. He offers his peace. He says these words in the midst of a vacillating world that is neither at peace nor in a position to give peace. And so there's a difference between the way the world gives and the way Jesus gives. And Jesus says he doesn't give like the world as the world gives. It's, it's not like that at all. So how does the world give? The, the gifts that the world gives are insincere, powerless, meager, motivated by selfishness. The world gives gifts to those who can reciproca- reciprocate in some way rather than to those who are in need. The, the world gives with an eye to receiving back. It might even give with an eye to taking back. Worldly giving gives gifts to friends, to important persons, to well-connected people, to well-off people, to those who have the resources to give back. The gift-giving of Christ, though, is not like that at all. The gifts that Jesus gives are sincere and they're powerful and they're bountiful and they come at a great cost to him. He gives to those in need rather than to those who can reciprocate. The gift of peace, the gift of the peace of Christ, offers, it offers you something that is greater than you can give back to him in return. And the gift of peace that Christ offers you is not the gift of financial peace or physical peace always. He, he doesn't offer the gift of freedom from emotional pain. The peace of Christ is not the same thing as the absence of suffering, hardship. At least not in this life. Those things will come to an end someday, but not in this 
life. No, Christ's gift of peace is the gift at bottom, fundamentally, it's the gift of a right relationship with God, which is foundational to every other gift that God gives you in Christ. A right relationship, a peaceable relationship with the God who made you. Peace with God is the principal gift that Christ gives. Paul says in Colossians 1.20, God was pleased to reconcile all things to himself through Christ, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace, how? By the blood of his cross. We don't make peace with God. He makes peace with us through the blood of the cross of Jesus Christ. Not only do we not make peace with God, we are unable to make peace with God. Even if we tried, we can't, we couldn't do such a thing. We, we had no way to atone for our sins. We had no way to satisfy the wrath of God, the just wrath of God against us. We had no way to make ourselves alive to God by faith in Christ. But the death of Jesus on the cross propitiated God's wrath. It propitiated God's anger. It absorbed God's anger and wrath against his people. It removed the grounds for hostility so that everyone who believes in Christ can enjoy peace with God. So peace with God is the fundamental gift that Christ accomplishes for us, for his people on the cross. And it's the fundamental gift that he leaves with his people. But this peace doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop at peace with God. It has, it has to start there. It must start there, just as the foundation of a house must start with the foundation. Or the building of a house must start with the foundation. But it can't stop there. It also includes the peace of God. It includes the, we could call it personal peace that Jesus himself always had when he was on this earth. This is the peace that everybody's looking for. Believers and unbelievers alike, if you're a human, you long for this kind of peace. The peace of God. Personal peace. Now, it's, it's possible to have this peace of God, personal peace. It's, it's impossible to enjoy the peace of God if you're not at peace with God. If you haven't been reconciled to God through the blood of the cross of Christ. But even those of us who are at peace with God in that way, who have been saved by grace through faith, through the blood of the cross, we often struggle to experience that personal peace that Christ enjoyed and that Christ offers. There are two characteristics of this personal peace that Christ enjoyed while he was on the earth. First, it requires knowing God personally through faith-filled prayer. 
It requires knowing God personally through faith-filled prayer. I'll get to a scripture, but first let's just think about Jesus. Jesus was constantly talking with the Father, constantly communing with God, constantly presenting his requests to God, constantly casting his cares on to his Father, his loving Father. There was no room for anxiety in Jesus, in in his heart and in his mind, because he was full of faith and prayer. There's just no room for it to get in. He was already full. Faith-filled prayer displaces anxiety. It works the other way. On the flip side, anxiety can displace faith and prayer. Earlier I read from Philippians 4, 7, where Paul said, "...and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding..." will guard or watch over, keep watch over your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. But the verse right before this one, which doesn't get quoted quite as often, it's still pretty popular, the verse right before this one describes what must be happening for this incomprehensible peace of God to watch over your heart and mind, for that to be the case. Previous verse, Philippians 4, 6 says, Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Those are two popular verses. One may be a little bit more popular than the other, but sometimes we forget to put them together. The promise in verse 7 is that the peace of God will stand guard over your heart and mind as you are in Christ Jesus. This is a promise for those who are in Christ Jesus, the verse says. And the word guard in that verse, is, is the work of a, of a military guard, a watchman, whose, whose job is to prevent hostile invasion. So, so think of a tower guard who protects the city from enemy forces, invaders. The peace of God is a tower guard for the city of your heart. It keeps the anxiety of the world from invading. So, so the promise there in Philippians 4, 7 is that the peace of God will act as this guard, military guard against hostile enemy forces. However, verse 6 states the condition, the condition to this promise. Only those who know God personally in faith-filled prayer will, will have this guard watching over their hearts and minds. Do not be anxious about anything, verse 6 says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then, says verse 7, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will watch over, protect your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, So those things have to be going on at the same time. It's not that we cause God's grace to kick in. But when God's grace is doing one, he's doing the other. It's doing the other. The second characteristic of the personal peace that Christ enjoyed is um, a personal uh, knowledge of God. So we, we can just kind of focus in on this. 
a personal knowledge of God, which, when it's in place, allows this peace to operate independent of circumstances. Independent of circumstances. So, Christ's knowledge of God, his knowledge of the Father, and knowledge there is not just a head knowledge, but his relationship with the Father. That, that, was, that we see exhibited in prayer and trust and casting his cares onto the Father. That knowledge is the basis for having a peace that's independent of circumstances. Independent of what's going on around you. One preacher puts it this way. Circumstances raged around Jesus, but he was totally unruffled by them. His enemies foamed with rage and their passionate desire to kill him. But still he went his way, knowing that his life and times were in the hands of a loving, wise, and all-powerful heavenly Father. Jesus didn't have the peace that the world gives, you see. He had something greater. And we can add here that he does not, he did not have the peace that the world gives, nor does he give the peace that the world gives. He gives something far better, far more lasting. His, his peace transcends our understanding, just as his peace transcends our circumstances. So you see how it transcends both. It transcends our understanding, but it also transcends our circumstances. So to enjoy this kind of peace, first, you must renounce, you must renounce your pursuit for worldly peace. So so Jesus acknowledges here, there are two different kinds of peace, we could say. The world gives one and, and I give one, Jesus says. The corollary to this is that to enjoy one, you must renounce the other. The reason God's peace is not guarding your heart and mind, if that's the case, is that you're still in hot pursuit of the peace that the world offers. Once you renounce that pursuit... We could say to the extent that you renounce that pursuit, the personal peace that Christ enjoyed and that Christ gives will be yours. I'll wrap up this first point with a a longish but really great quote from D.A. Carson's commentary on John. Quote, at the individual level, this peace secures composure in the midst of trouble and dissolves fear. This is the peace which garrisons our hearts and minds against the invasion of anxiety and rules in the hearts of God's people to maintain harmony amongst them. Colossians 3.15 Of this peace, Jesus says, I do not give it to you as the world gives. The world is powerless to give peace. The world promises peace and waves flags of peace as a greeting. It cannot give it. But Jesus displays transcendent peace, his own peace, my peace, he calls it, throughout his perilous hour of suffering and death. And by that death, he absorbs in himself 
the malice of others, the sin of the world, and introduces the promised messianic peace in a way none of his contemporaries had envisaged. The Pax Romana, Roman peace, was won and maintained by a brutal sword. Not a few Jews thought the messianic peace would have to be secured by a still mightier sword. Instead... It was secured by an innocent man who suffered and died at the hands of the Romans, of the Jews, and of all of us. And by his death, he effected for his own followers peace with God and therefore the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, end quote. Number two, the peace of Christ persists even though Christ is gone. The peace that Christ speaks of in this passage is present despite Christ's physical absence. Let's reread verses 28 and 29. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said, I'm going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass... You may believe, you may trust. The text gives two reasons why the disciples should be at peace, even though Jesus is about to leave. The first reason is that it would be better for Jesus. We should be happy because it is better for him. If you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father. If the apostles truly loved Christ, if they were really in it for him and thinking about his interests above their own, they would be glad that he gets to return to heaven. He gets to go back to where he belongs, in a sense, to to enjoy the glory that he had with the Father before the world even began. The undiminished glory of the Father is far greater than, than the glory that the incarnate Son had while He was on the earth. When when Jesus says there, He is greater than I, that's what He's getting at, that the glory of God, the glory of the Father is greater, more splendid than the glory of the incarnate Son. It's not saying that the Father is more God than the Son, more divine than the Son, has more power than the Son or anything like that. He's comparing God the Father with God the Son in the flesh, having become man. And so his departure would be for his gain. If they loved Jesus, the disciples would have wanted him to return home. They would have rejoiced with him at the prospect. As it is, though, they're they're, they're consumed by grief, and their grief indicates their self-centeredness. And the failure of the disciples here is instructive for us. Their failure here is often repeated in our lives. 
If you're like me, you're often more alert to your own grief and sorrow than you are the things that bring Jesus joy and glory. Second reason why the disciples should be at peace, even though Jesus would be gone, is that this was also better for them. They, they couldn't imagine anything better than having Jesus with them. And they certainly couldn't imagine him being gone and that being a good thing, much less a better thing. But it would be better for them. Jesus had taught them several times that it would be better for him to leave so that he could prepare, uh, so that he could be replaced by the Holy Spirit. He needed to leave so that the Holy Spirit could replace him and be their teacher, as we discussed last week. So why would it, why would it have been, why would it be better for the Holy Spirit to be with them? Because as their teacher, the Spirit would cause them to believe. He would create new and lasting faith in them. That's what verse 29 says. I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. When Jesus leaves to go to the Father, the Spirit's going to come and He's going to give faith to the disciples. Then they'll be able to trust God They'll be able to have faith in Christ in a way they never did or could when Jesus was with them bodily. Now you can imagine what the disciples might be thinking at this point. I'm going to go and I'm going to send you, the Father's going to send you the Holy Spirit whom you can't see, you know, you're not, but, but he's going to cause you to believe. They're probably thinking, that, among other things, perhaps, that they already believe. What else do they have to do? They've, been, they've put their faith in this man who says he's the Messiah. They've been following him for three years, leaving behind their livelihoods, at least to some extent. So they, they already do believe, right? Well, yes and no. They, they believed what they understand, which what they understood, but which wasn't much. They had failed to understand that Jesus had to suffer and die and rise again on the third day, even though he had told them that that's exactly what would happen. They still didn't believe that the coming suffering of Christ would be a blessing to them and to others and to the whole world. The disciples hadn't learned how to believe that whatever comes, no no matter how tragic it seems to be, whatever comes, whatever God ordains, is always to be for their good. It's not always easy. But it's always for their good. The disciples had to learn that whatever happens will always be for their growth in faith. It'll always turn out to be a blessing to them and others because Christ We'll make sure of it. That's the kind of faith that the Holy Spirit would give them. But it's the kind of faith they didn't have yet. The disciples still needed to learn how to exercise this kind of faith. And the Spirit was coming to teach them. We too must make sure that we're learning 
the, the same thing. The Holy Spirit is teaching us the same thing. We must make sure that we're learning the same thing from our teacher, the Holy Spirit. Whatever afflicts us is sent by God for our good, for our growth in grace and godliness, for the increase of our faith. That's why we can and must let the peace of God rule in our hearts at all times. There's never a good time for the peace of God not to rule in our hearts, even in the midst of undesirable circumstances. Finally, number three, the peace of Christ persists even though the devil is active. Let's look at that, those last two verses again. John 14, verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. What, what's the Lord mean when he says, the ruler of this world is coming? Who is the ruler of this world? It's the devil. And the coming of the devil here refers to the activity of the devil, specifically, especially, in precipitating the, the crucifixion of Jesus. Satan was moving in the heart of Judas and in the hearts of many others, the Jewish and Roman authorities who put Christ to death. And yet, this doesn't trouble Jesus at his core. He maintained personal peace even in the midst of Satan's hostile activities. Now, it He's obviously in turmoil. It's not a happy-go-lucky situation. That's not what personal peace is. It's a very difficult situation, a very troubling situation, we could call it, in which Jesus maintains the peace of God, even in the midst of Satan's attack. At the end of verse 30, Jesus tells us why Satan couldn't do anything to him. He has nothing in me. Sort of an idiomatic phrase, we might say, he has nothing on me. The devil had no claim on Jesus. How, how could he? How could the devil have a claim on Jesus? Satan, he's only the ruler of this world, the text says. Jesus isn't of this world. And he's never sinned. So when Jesus says he has nothing in me, he means there's no sin in me for Satan to latch onto like a, like a handle. He, he can't get a handle on me. The, the devil only could have done something to Jesus or had something on Jesus or had something in Jesus if there had been a justifiable charge against Jesus. In that case, the death of Jesus would have been due punishment, and it would have been Satan's triumph. However, because Christ is sinless, because he is not of this world, his death proves his statement in verse 31. I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. 
is there a better summary statement of the life of Christ than what I just read from verse 31? I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. The commandment in Christ's mind here, the the commandment that he's referring to, particularly here, is his, his going to the cross, his crucifixion. The Father commanded him to go to the cross. And out of love for the Father, Jesus obeyed. Is this a summary statement of your life? Can you say with Jesus, I love the Father, and as the Father gives me commandment, so I do. After all, the the Father has commanded you to die to yourself on your cross. He, He sent you to a cross as well. Not the cross that atones, but the cross that... Peter, Paul says, fills up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ as he builds his kingdom through you, through us, through our suffering. So what keeps you from being able to say, I love the Father and as the Father gave me commandment, principally to take up my cross and die, so I do. What's keeping you from being able to say that? Is it your pursuit of worldly peace? That's standing in your way. Almost certainly each of us has that standing in our way to some extent. Are are you chasing after the empty, fruitless, dead in peace that the world offers, that the world gives? It'll even give it to you. It just comes up empty. Are you under the illusion that you know, a million dollars, a couple million bucks would, would pretty much solve all my problems and a little bit more. Like the disciples, are you more focused on your grief and sorrow than you are on what makes Jesus joyful, happy, what brings him glory, what pleases him? Where's your focus? Where are your thoughts throughout the day? The Lord has left you a legacy of peace. Peace with God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. Have you entered into it? Now, perhaps you're someone who has peace with God. As the people of God, we have peace with God through faith in Christ, through the blood of Jesus. So, You're no longer his enemy because of that. But perhaps you still don't know what it means to experience the personal peace of God that Jesus experienced every day of his life on the earth, no matter what was going on around him. If so, what's standing in your way? Does your mind go straight to circumstances? Something you you need and then you could have it? What's keeping you from enjoying the peace that surpasses human understanding? It may be willful sin that you need to repent of. It may be bitterness that you're harboring 
in your heart. But I'll tell you what the real obstacle is. If you're not experiencing the peace of God, whatever else we might say, there might be a lot of things that we could say. I gave a few examples. But if you're not experiencing the peace of God, it's because your mind, as Isaiah puts it, is not stayed on God. The mind of Christ, when he was on this earth, was always stayed on God. The peace that watches over your heart and mind will only stand guard as long as your mind is stayed on God. Isaiah 26.3 You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. People of God, trust in God. Believe God. Keep your mind stayed on God. Keep your eyes fixed on His Son, Jesus. Stop chasing after everything that is not God. And really, when we think about the gifts that God gives, the main gift He gives is Himself. We could summarize this entire sermon by saying God gives himself to you. When he gives himself to you, he gives his peace to you. So stop chasing after everything. Stop your pursuit of anything that is not God. Let God keep you in his perfect peace, which really does transcend all human understanding. Let's pray and ask for God to help us do this. Father, you have been good to us. You have accomplished for us peace with you and the peace that you give to those who have peace with you, the peace of Christ, the peace of God the peace that transcends all understanding. We thank you for accomplishing this in us through the cross of Jesus Christ and through the power of his spirit working in us. Help us this week to keep our minds stayed on you, to keep our hearts and our minds set on things that are above rather than things that are on the earth so that we can live in the power of your resurrection, in the power of the peace that Christ left with us. We ask for this, and we thank you for these things, these promises. In the name of Jesus, amen.